Hello and welcome to Adorium Conversations, episode 11. I'm Andy Hart, a senior advisor at Adorium, and delighted today to introduce to you Dr. Tia Kansara. Hello, Hello. Tia. Hello. Hi, Andy. How are you? Where are you? Oh my God, I love this. I am currently in Leek, um, in the middle of uh, a, a brilliant COVID situation. <laughs> what, is, what is your brilliant COVID situation? My, my brilliant COVID situation is navigating between um, some interesting endeavours to adjust not only to what is effectively buildings and cities that we've designed for non-pandemic situations and this kind of like bridging moment where it's like oh, everything that we've built for density is just inappropriate. What are we going to do? Well, I, I, we are going to explore more behind all of that work and that... Uh, thinking but before we get into work we'd love to learn a little bit about you and your background uh what is your doctor phd stuff about <gasps> yes my so i started my phd without a master's and it was when i had created this company Hackman limited and it just so happened that we were arriving in saudi arabia and the first you know um signpost was a doctor Hackney, my business partner's name, and Pravin Kansara, my father's name. And I was like, that's a bit strange. Why would they put my, my dad's name down? My dad's not coming. It's me. And my business partner, as a joke, said, do you know it would be really good if you're a doctor? Then there would be no gender attached to your name. So they wouldn't know if you're a man or a woman. And so it sort of stuck. And then whilst, you know, interviewing fostering partners for a job, we did end up giving this job to them in Saudi Arabia. We ended up um, exploring Mazdar City, a city in the middle of the desert called uh, the Zero Carbon Zero Waste City. It was the first time they were going to design anything quite like this. And it was a moment where we really got to explore what does it mean to live a sustainable lifestyle in a sustainable city when nobody's really ever done that before. You've got all the technology, you've got all of the behavioral psychological shifts that happen because you're in an immersed experience. But with no panel studies of people living in these physical spaces over years. And so I really wanted to start that. And I thought, well, I'd love to study this. Wow, this is effectively, this is what architects do. They design the way that people live. They design for these particular behaviors inside these environments. And then what they do is extract that into standards and organizations like the ASHRAE and various others like LEED, Platinum and, and, and BRIAM and these rating systems and create these environments that effectively design your behavior. So I wanted to ask the question, what kind of sustainable behavior could we create from the physical environment? Is it technology or is it personal? Like, would you go in there and, and decide for yourself that you wanted to do that? Or would you not be able to decide because the technology had made that decision for you? So that really got me going. Um, I sort of veered off into a number of different directions, which is basically what happens in a PhD. But, uh, you know, suffice it to say, the broader topic was on smart cities if you have smart cities do you have unsmart citizens Ooh, and what, and what to find to be the answer oh really good question <laughs> um such a good answer that the government stopped me from publishing it to the public really yeah so i got my phd which is brilliant but i can't share it <laughs> And can, you can't share it uh, in, as a publication or can you share a little can't bit? can't publish it. I can't publish it. So it was like, amazing to get my PhD. And now, and it was hilarious because as soon as the PhD had finished, of course, I went to graduation, everything was done. And, um, you know, all my friends were saying, well, can I read it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, uh, we, would love to, we would love to be able to, but we know that what you, you learned and what you observed has informed your work all the way Massively. through uh, your career which we'd love to love to understand about all the way through to replenish earth and beyond yeah totally i mean it just woke me up it really woke me up we're making decisions we're designing things that have a negative impact on the environment there are incredible amounts of externalities that are developed because of the economic infrastructure that we have and we've based that on the programming of capitalism so effectively we live the capital accumulation philosophy land ownership 
control of certain assets, the exchange of goods and services across the world, design of physical assets. And all of these are part of a system. So effectively, if we want to shift and change anything, we have to go to the core of that system, kind of like a, a blockchain consensus algorithm. If the algorithm doesn't work for nature, nature will tear it apart. And we've seen that time and time again. If it doesn't work for nature, nature will, will sort of, you know, vomit, basically. And this is where a lot of the questions and, and existential basis really starts to bubble up because you've got the deeper understanding of who we are, what we're here for, what we're here to do, and that doesn't really match with the environment. And so it, it, it begs the question, are we doing something wrong? Do we need to adjust to something? What kind of adjustments do we need to make? And that's where the replenish earth piece of it really started to fit in because you know we're designing sustainable cities but they're not really sustainable because they're in the desert environment hmm. have you accounted for the co2 footprint of every piece of the city coming into the city how is it going to run itself is it sustainable in terms of the durability of its existence how are you going to maintain it do people really want to even live there um these are, are larger questions but then on a personal level if we are to live in harmony with nature, then does everything else have to shift? So if the philosophy is not about capital accumulation, but the philosophy of, of living in harmony with nature is at the core, then it's no longer an economy that we're looking at. We're looking at an ecosystem. And just like you know the, the thermodynamic laws, the moment that you start to generate a singular uh, uniform structure, you then have chaos because of that uniform structure. So monocrops and all sorts of biodiversity challenges that come up from that. But coming back to the replenish aspect, it's a shift in the way that we program ourselves. So if we don't want to have capital accumulated on landfill sites, which is effectively what we have as an output of cities, then we need to change the input. And so the input is more about how do we put sustainability into the, the forefront as a forethought rather than afterthought. So it's not, oh, we've done really bad for the environment, who cares? Nobody else is really telling us off about it because we can get away with it. There are no regulations against putting things in the dustbin. You could have chemical produce in the dustbin going out on a landfill site, but no one's there to check it. Who checks your black bags? Um, you know, in the UK, they're not checked. If they are, then, you know, I'll be damned. But they just get collected and then they are accumulated. So there's no responsibility individually for the responsibility that you had for the choices that you made to put what you did in the dustbin. Um, but the consequences are all of ours. So there seems to be at source an issue. And that's where the consumer's choices, if you're talking, talking in terms of, you know, economics, the consumer's choices are affecting the rest of the system. So if it is an ecosystem, it cannot have a monocrop. It doesn't work like that. And I think that's where we're really shifting our mentality about business. Because if you really want to scale competition, or if you want to scale in a capitalistic structure, you need competition. But if you want to scale a cooperative, you need community. I think there's a very big difference. Going back to Thatcher's times, when she would often say, community is dead well in the times of covid if your community doesn't knock on your door to ask if you're okay i doubt very much that nurses and doctors have the time right now so who is it that's making up for the social fabric of society to make up for what is otherwise not accounted for so if you look in terms of and i can go on about this dandy as you know but if you look at you know uh, an entire slew of services from the social factors like daughters looking after their you know, uh, their parents, instead of putting them into an old people's home, uh, mother care, uh, cooking at home, cleaning at home, all of these other jobs that effectively in a, let's say, a, a traditional marital situation wouldn't really be accounted for if you were to account for the, the five or six jobs that maybe a, a, per, a parent remaining at home would be doing. That's a huge amount of money that they're actually saving. But if you were to account for them in the economic system, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't balance out. So it's really interesting, the dynamics that we're seeing right now, especially during the times of COVID, where so many people are at home, are asking these existential questions, which for some time, maybe they just didn't need to answer. And uh, it's interesting you use economic terms to talk about valuing the system. Obviously, we're 
in the West living in a capitalist system. So that, that's the language that uh, we understand. And I guess some of the accountability comes through those, let's say, financial processes. But when you talk about the balance sheet issues with what used to be called housewives, gender independent, of course, do you think that financial and economic measures are the right way to A, uh, represent what's going on and B, actually drive change? It's an interesting one, because if I take the example of my vote, uh, an organisation that a friend of mine, Adam Yakubi, has set up, it is effectively an opportunity to, to educate the citizens about what it means to vote. So if you're at the age of 18 given the opportunity to vote, but you've no idea about voting because your schooling has never including any, any kind of political science. I mean, in the UK, in a state school or in a private school, I haven't personally come across any kind of education about voting. So the history of voting, what it is that I'm supposed to be voting on, the different kinds of policies. Let's take immigration. If I were to take an immigration policy and decide that this is where I stand and my, this is my opinion, but it's formed over a number of years, like, you know, for example, in a yeshiva, you know, battling out and debating a variety of different issues. So I know what my stance is. Then I would, at the age of 18, know exactly what, what I was voting on. So immigration policy. Am I going to take a nationalistic approach? Am I going to take a humanitarian approach? Whatever my approach is, if I were educated about that, then it would give me the options of deciding exactly where I stood. Now, taking the example of my vote, this organization, what they do is they break it down into the different kinds of policies, but they're non So it's not about having a bias according to Labour or Conservative or Liberal Democrats or anything. It's about the policy and what you believe in. So once you've been educated about these different sections, the light goes green. And until you've actually read through the entire thing, you're not going to be able to vote. And that's the system that they've created. That's a very decentralized approach to voting. Of course, it's one example. You can then extract that same level across communal spaces. So take the road, uh, a road where you want to drive. You need a license so that you're not a hazard to anybody else in the road, so that you know how to perceive different levels of hazards. You take a test to make sure that you've learned those things. You get insurance, MOT, and various other things on the car. The car that you drive that you're responsible for is on the road. The road is a communal area. Everyone in society who also has gone through the rigor of that licensing process is on the road sharing those roads with you. Now, if you were to allow anybody in this communal area to take on a car without any of the prior licensing, infrastructure, education and testing, you're going to have mayhem. And that's effectively what we have today, making decisions in community where you could be a hazard to community because of the lack of educational testing or licensing. I mean, in communal factors that can be entirely different from, of course, a passing a test of a, of a car. But the bridge that we need to make between what it means to be a citizen today and what it has been to be a citizen yesteryear, that's the bridge that we're looking at right now. So, Yes, it's okay to be thinking about, well, we never had to make these decisions before. How do we make them now? Because do we even have that kind of infrastructure socially? Community is really important. But when do you feel a sense of that community if you've individualized everything as a singular point in society? Well, you're an individual. You stand for yourself. You work for yourself. You cater for yourself. You're a, you know, a one person band effectively but the moment that you start extending and you take examples of communities like the middle east or in india for example where you have multiple generations living together recycling that knowledge is really important that wisdom that is in the lived experience of the ancestry that's still alive <coughs> is really important so that's where you know how are we meant to even continue the legacy of history when we have no idea what that history is because there's no living proof of that history. Yes, we can go and read books, but there's thousands, if not millions of books out there. So where do we begin? We begin with the stories and the narratives that are personal, and then we expand out. In thinking about what you're saying, it's very interesting that all of the traditional religions encourage all of those behaviours that you are talking about. Uh, but we've got a world uh, of individuals that are moving away from the, let's say, uh, 
traditional uh, Christian Judaic Islamic uh, world, but seem to be picking up more of the the Eastern philosophies. Is this nature fighting back? It's really fascinating. I think what's happened, and I take the example of my father. My father was born in East Africa to Indian parents who had moved there from Porbandar, uh, where Mahatma Gandhi was born in Western India. And he was working under the British. Um, both my grandfathers were, and then one of my grandfathers came to the UK in 1968, obviously brought all of his family. And it reminds me of this identity that, that we have, that we're becoming slowly even more aware of, that we have moved from, I, mean, I took the example of my father because he, you know, he crossed from India, I mean, his ancestry is Indian, Kenyan and British, because now we're his descendants and we're born here. But he lives in Birmingham, in a space that I would say probably about 10 kilometers in you know, radius, where you know, all of his friends, um, well, most of his friends, most of his life, amenities that he requires are all within that geographic location. And every time I tra travel, I sort of bring something back, even if it's a story or it's a memento or something. And it just reminds me of the, the, the contrast that there is. Yes, historically, he has the experience of these locations, but the more turf that is covered, the more complexity is required for the multiple perspectives that are now needed simultaneously. If during the time he was living and working in all three locations, it would be very different from him. For, for him to hold an Indian perspective as well as the Kenyan perspective, as well as the, the British perspective. At the moment, he's stationary. But anybody who's been moving around the world or anybody who has connection points to a wider audience and probably needs to learn multiple languages or, or now is in Japan, like I was when I was you know, 22, speaking a different language where right and wrong are kind of borderline. Writing with a red pen in Japan is only to invite people to death, a, a funeral, a, a sad situation. Writing with a red pen in India, it is only for shub situations where it's to invite them to marriage ceremony. So it's a ceremony rather than something that, that causes sadness. And yet the red pen is just a red pen. So the context is different. And the more context we create or that we are exposed to, the more we realize that there is the other out there. And I think that the conversation of the other, given that we are in, at the moment, the largest awakening in terms of race relationship or the relationship of Black Lives Matter at the moment for all of us, it's really interesting because these perspectives are our perspectives. They're not their perspectives. They become ours too. So the bridge between the other and myself becomes much more of a wider scape that it becomes mine too. It becomes my space. And so broadening out the, the 10 kilometers squared of my father to the globe where I've been gallivanting around has really developed this concept in my head about what does it mean to be really global when if you're only reinforcing the behaviors that you know and not being exposed and open to that, the behaviors of others. So Eastern philosophies or how do they do things in Singapore? How do they do things in animism? That curiosity wouldn't come unless if you were immersed in the environment or in conversation with people from there. So the more exposure we get, this is a TV program that we used to watch when we were kids in the UK was Little House on the Prairie. And it was this little house on the prairie mentality, right? Like, yeah, she's going to marry a guy, like she's going to marry the guy down the road, like the down the hill, because that's who she knows. I mean, the time of digital connectedness to somebody on the other side of the planet. Yeah, slightly different. But there was, there was something beautiful in that historic flow of parents doing the best that they could know because their experience set and their, the locus of their uh, amenities was relatively small. Uh, they didn't have multiple choices. They just repeated history with a little you know, improvement, a little modern day improvement. But it seems that we are so inundated with information and choice and complexity and different cultures. My, I, isn't it making it harder for especially the younger people to make decisions on the directions of how they live? 
that's by virtue of the age that we're living in. And I'm not too sure if it's ever, unless if you make a conscious decision to live in the hills of New Zealand and move away from any kind of 5G network continuation or anything like that, right? So it's, the big question is, what kind of lifestyle do we wanna have? I think there are a number of choices that we need to navigate. On the one side, it is how do we design an existence that is in tune with the values that we want to practice? Is there, for example, principles of our own ethics that need to be questioned? Do we, do we go on this exploration ourselves? And if we do, then how do we go about doing this exploration? What kind of questions should we be asking ourselves? Are we in alignment with this, for example? Do we want to have this much complexity in our lives? Effectively, you can turn your mobile off, you can turn your laptop off, and you can have absolutely no access to the digital world, but through secondary and thirdary, uh, tertiary people. So in your own community, in your own life, in your own home, you can decide that you're living entirely different. So those choices could be yours. Switch the television off and all of a sudden, or, or just get rid of the television, and otherwise all print media, and you're in a completely different era. So it's not because by default you're in this situation, it's because you by default have the opportunity of making choices of which era you want to be in. And so today we have the era of living in the Amazon or the Arawaka tribes in the Sierra Nevada in Colombia, which I went to go and visit and stayed with. 4,000 years of their history in one location. You can go and live with the Aboriginals in um, Uluru and sit and meditate and learn their ways around Uluru, 45,000 years of history. It's really fascinating that the Arawaka tribe have decided no mobile phones, no technology, no electricity. We're good. This is the way that we want to live. And yet, I'm sure if you were to go to Napa Valley, you've got people who are, who are injecting stem cells. <laughs> but what a contrast. <laughs> what and, I a contrast. You, and I know you've visited and you know uh, people in, in both communities. Uh, which, one, which ones do you think are happier? That's a really beautiful question, Andy, because of course that kind of relates back to some of the work that I've done on, on uh, cross-national happiness, right? Um, well-being, well-being, what a big question. Mental well-being, emotional well-being, physical well-being, spiritual well-being, well-being, intellectual well-being, gosh, like the list is endless. What kind of well-being is important to us? And I think that brings me back to the work of the Bhutanese government on cross-national happiness rather than gross domestic product. I think happiness is a really important state of, of an emotional state to understand, process, recognize. But often what I say and, and inspired by the background on the image behind you, emotions are an array of rainbow colors. If we only choose one, that monochrome, may not be something that we would appreciate. This is my own perspective. But to be only happy would be saying that on the rainbow behind you, I just want green. That's the color that I want. And so I want everything with green tinted glasses. And that's all I want. And yet the rainbow is not just green. So there is this you know, consciousness or an awareness to what is, and then bringing that back into what can be and I think reality is limited by your imagination but imagination is also limited by your reality what you experience is then all that has been created around you but then when you imagine something beyond that and that's the dual form of imagination and reality that you can influence either way you can influence your imagination and you can influence your reality so now you're neutral it's not binary so where do you want to take it? I think that kind of power over the self and the emotions, especially when it comes to happiness, is a really big question because it's pegged to certain factors. Is it pegged to accreditation? Is it pegged to trauma of the past epigenetically shifting your gene expression over time? Are there certain factors that can impact you that you never knew could impact you because you didn't know that they are impacting you in the way that they are subconsciously subliminal messages in society or TV or anything like 
print media, magazines that are showing photo, you know, synthesized, like digitally synthesized imagery that is actually not even real, um, but appears to be what society is feeling and thinking. So I think what's happened is a distortion of emotion, a distortion of the matter that energy, you know, can, can really connect us in ways that go beyond just the physical form. So it's almost as if every time we put our energy to our consciousness towards something, we, we, matter comes to meet it, right? So we think about something and matter comes to meet that. Our emotions are sort of like that energy in motion where we move beyond what a lot of the Jeet Kune Do professionals or the martial artists would say, like Ip Man would say, is the energy that then meets the form. So by being energetically involved, we don't allow for the unknowns to appear. So put differently, the reason why Bruce Lee created the intercepting fist is not because he was extremely fast at his martial arts, that he was. It was the fact that before a person even thought, as they were thinking about it, before energy moved from thought to, act, to, to, thought to energy to action, it was thought picked up, intercepted by the time the energy had reached the hand to move it, the response was already there. And that is, if you remember, I think it was a Batman movie, there's a moment where in meditation, Christian Bell is, is asked to close his eyes, he's blindfolded, he's drugged up with something psychotic. And then um, given the opportunity to meditate in a way where he is fighting with a blindfold on, and effectively that is the relationship that we have with energy. We don't need to see matter to know that the energetic connection is there. Some people call it the aura, others call it the bioelectric field, but it's present. This electromagnetism is present, just like the magnetism or the magnetite that connects with the magnetism of the planet on the beak of a, of a bird. It knows where it's going. It's like the whales know where Alaska is somehow with no A to Zs. Sorry, <laughs> it's gonna make a joke. <laughs> Right, we'll always cut it out. <laughs> you, you can't, I mean, just the imagery of seeing a whale with like a, you know, an A to Z saying, right, darling, do you think it's left from here? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, the whale going, hey, sweet, get, get me to Alaska, please. Yes, you know what I mean? Can I have an automatic car, please? I just, you know, I can't be asked to drive there. Um, but it is, it's a big question about whether we are aligned with nature in the ways that nature may have created or not. <laughs> Sorry, my, uh, my Siri just answered the question. <laughs> so uh, I, I, want, I want to, uh, to manage our, our time because uh, as, you, as you know, whenever we, whenever we get in conversation, we go in, in many directions for many hours. Um, but I, uh, uh, I was always very proud of you uh, being the youngest ever honorary member of the uh, FRIBA, which is the British Institute of Architects. Correct, yeah, the uh, Royal Institute of British Architects, and this is an honorary fellowship, and in a hundred and, I think, 40 years, don't quote me, of the history of the RIBA, I'm the youngest to ever receive the, um, the honorary fellowship, but also um, I believe that being the youngest for what is otherwise a lifetime achievement achievement award got me thinking about what does architecture mean beyond drawing architectural buildings so architecture sort of expands beyond what is effectively the design of a building and goes into the design of community and that's the kind of work that I was recognized for doing the work in community architecture with my business partner Rod Hackney the challenge is how do you go beyond what is physically architecture and architect the invisible? The spatial dynamics, the interaction points between us and society. Of course, if I design a building, I'm not an architect, I'm, a, I'm an economist. But if we were to design a building, you design the behavior of a person going into a building. So as soon as you enter, if you don't go left, you can go left and that's your behavior that's been designed. But if I create a physical space that makes you feel something differently, what would that feeling be? I never understood this until 
I believe Norman Foster was um, at the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Art in London. His wife was showcasing one of the videos that she had of his buildings. And she so beautifully, oh my gosh, I've never felt this sensuality towards buildings before. But by watching the movie, How Much Does Your Building Weigh, Mr. Foster? The movie just goes into so much of the delicacy, the, the, the artistry behind architecture, not just a block of cement with a window that, you know, kind of like quite brutalist, but it's actually this relationship with us in physical form and how we are influenced by that physical form, the physicality of our environment, proprioception, the interaction of us and space. And that spatial dynamics is something that is so important to create. So when you are designing community spaces, it's not about going in like a colonial and telling people what to do, but it's actually about receiving the information from the community and recognizing that there are particular forms and structures that can really support them. And so with these indigenous tribes or whether it is with the work with informal settlements like favelas, this is the work that makes the biggest impact going into something close to 2 billion people's worth of existence at this moment in time, where probably if we're not careful, a larger group of people will not have land tenure, will probably have no access to some of the most basic rights that we have today, like clean water, sanitation, a roof over your head, all of those sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, step one, hasn't even been checklisted off, right? So there's no tick there. And I would even add right now that the extension of that is the digital realm. The fact that the human commons are on the digital framework, that if you have access to the digital world, you have access to millions of hours, if not billions of hours worth of content created by humanity for humanity. And they could be anything from how to look after your children and parent well to a university course on the MBA to run a business really well. Any course that you will find online has been created through a human being, and that human has spent hours of their most precious resource called time. And that time is shared digitally on a platform, and that platform should be accessible to all. Because the idea that all of the work, for example, taken through the research and development in the medical industry today during COVID, not being in any way connectable to somebody who needs it across the world would be really sad. So I think there is something that we generate in the commons, the digital, the human, or the global, the physical commons, that are not owned by one person, therefore are, all, are owned and co-shared by all of us. And access to that is really important. So that's the kind of work that I've been sort of slowly finding my route around and, and uh, yeah, very interesting times. Uh, and it's vitally important, but um, uh, there's also a layer to add on to that is context. It's all very well, these uh, two billion unconnected people getting connected, but a lot of the content they're gonna see, let's say of Western wealth or excess will drive unreal expectations. Um, and the context is not set to show the mental health issues, the opioid uh, epidemic that, uh, that comes from actually not really fulfilling your inner needs by chasing the, this wealthy dream. I totally agree with that. There is a big challenge with regards to disinformation and weaponization of our data in a manner that is really scaring the pants off me because I think if psychographics were designed in military situations with taxpayers' money, then used in companies like Cambridge Analytica, that being one of many companies at the time that were experimenting with psychographics. It's very scary if there is no regulation around that. Not to say that we need regulation, but at least community regulation, where it may not be that the government has, has um, come up to speed with something like 2008, when Satoshi released the white paper for Bitcoin, created effectively the first blockchain. 10 years later, 2018, something in the government is saying, wait, we need to do something about this. Where have you been this entire time that all of Bitcoin has had its 
first, second, third wave. Where have you been during that time? So community really is that first point of contact with human. The government is effectively working for us because we are employing them to do the job that we hope for them to do. So when did that turn around? When, when did that not happen? At what point were, were we not listened to? If you take the example of the constitution development in Iceland, I think they did a phenomenal job getting the entire country to organise themselves in a crowdocratic manner beyond anything that we've ever achieved in any other country like that to develop a constitution, an evolution of their old constitution. That's phenomenal. And to take that further and develop that and for government to support that is where we're at. Now, I, I always love your statement that there doesn't seem to be a campaign for digital disarmament. What do you totally. mean? Well, if any of my information is used, I want to know why it's being used, where it's being used, how it's being used. What's my information, just like it would be if you were to take a sample of my skin or a sample of my blood, it's, it's mine. You could say that it belongs to the human commons or the global commons. Okay, I don't have an argument for that. But anything that is physically in my property is mine. So if you were to take any of my data, my behavior, my attitudes, my opinions, anything that I've shared on Google, on Gmail for the last 15 years, let's say, that is still mine. Built on the, the Google, Facebook and everything else is built on military software, technology, hardware, that somewhere down the line, some taxpayer money has been spent to fund. So it should be in service of the people. And if it's not, and it's used as an excuse against me, that's not fair. So my data and the sovereignty of myself is important to me. The disarmament aspect comes in when you militarize my data to use it against me without my permission. So using that information without my permission is one thing. Using it with my permission is a completely different thing using any of my assets with my permission i accept if i've agreed to negotiate the terms but without those terms it's very difficult to create any kind of legalities around the you know the, the access to that information so what are the legalities around that and how can we create and generate much a much deeper understanding and appreciation for what people are doing in this field so yes you know the telecommunications companies worldwide supporting governments are really in a position of of rolling out information with or without our knowledge um, amazon and various other apple devices collecting information all the time about you and what you say and how you develop and organize yourself did you know that when it comes to the information about being pregnant amazon knows before you do because they've got access to the information because they're listening to you because they're watching what you're purchasing on amazon what kind of behaviors have shifted and changed and that's really interesting because it tells me a lot more about my behavior now if it's just one person okay fine fair enough what's here got to do with all of this but when you've got millions of people's worth of data statistically that helps you to organize mass, you know, bias. Yeah. Because now you've got, you know, a wider framework to work from. If you overlay on top of that um, AI, Internet of Things, quantum computing on top of all of that data, it's mm -hmm. a scary world. Exactly. And that, that is where the biases are really important. So data democracy, kind of like forensics on the data, how is it used? Data human, like digital humanity, because data wouldn't exist unless it were connected digitally. What is that information that is being used in that way for fraudulent purposes or to harass us or to manipulate us? So weaponizing that is a real issue. And if you were to add on the capabilities of higher speed, higher capability of processing power, the ability to bias the algorithms, then that's a really scary moment. Algorithms that are used in machine learning that are effectively coming from a human brain, a human psyche, a human consciousness. If I am racist, I'm going to design something subconsciously to be racist. And that is the infrastructure that has been designed for. I'll give you a really simple example, motion detection. 
in um, a lot of the technology that was designed, you know, if you put your hands underneath a motion detector under a tap for whiter skin, that worked really well. But the moment that you put black skin underneath it, or really dark skin underneath it, it wouldn't work because the light would go right through it and it would seem and appear to the machine that there was nobody there. And this is the thing about diversity. The more that we test out our ideas in a diverse environment, the better our technology even becomes. So they had to adjust that in motion detection. Now, if we're generating designing for a capitalistic environment structure that has negative externalities on the environment, then there is a bias that's innately there. So what kind of biases are there? And if we're not aware of them, at least seek to understand better. And I think that's where we are right now, coming full circle to, if we are to generate something of value, what is that value that we're creating? And to whom is it of value? Because if it is only of value to ourselves, then perhaps we've missed the point. Amen on that. And let's hope, hopefully we can, uh use this, these changing times to focus on what's important. So Tia, obviously you're a polymath and uh, you uh, have enormous experience and knowledge on so many areas. Uh, if any of our members want to get in contact uh, and need some help uh, within their businesses at this specific time, uh, what areas are you focusing on? How can you help? Yeah, two very specific areas. One is how to make sustainability your business. So whether you personally are thinking about a career move or whether you as a company are thinking of shifting anything from your supply chain, your products, whatever, please get in contact for you know, uh, crisis management to product design, redesign, supply chain analysis, CO2 footprinting, et cetera, for that. And, and the second is if you're interested in adapting your buildings or cities to pandemics, that's a, a very big area that, of course, my PhD looked at indoor comfort, thermal comfort and well-being, but also the architectural readjustments and refurbishments that you will probably need to yeah, adjust your buildings to potential further pandemics. And that's not just pandemics, if I understand it correctly. That's also uh, other uh, climate crises. As oh, well. yes, absolutely. I mean, that, that's basically where we started off, adjusting, adapting buildings to climate change. But of course, now with COVID being such a big factor in our lives, this is sort of a, a big uh, process of, of um, recognising that, now we need to change the way that we work and what is it in these office buildings or homes that we need to shift to help for quarantine situations or circulatory spaces that are appropriate for not just um, better air quality but the health of our occupants excellent last 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 question i promise so we've got all of this uh, change going on how are you preparing yourself for what comes next oh that's a really good question one definitely is to understand immune systems so my own immunity and the health of my family and impacting them through nutrition and what kind of you know, small changes can i make in my routine or can i make in the research that i do whether it is on endocrine disruption etc that can have a positive impact on our longevity the second is the intellectual factors so that is what do i need to learn how to unlearn there are factors things that i've learned of course pre-covid that may not be appropriate anymore so are there certain things that i'll be taking forward are there other things that i'll be reflecting and saying you know that just doesn't serve me or us uh, on a larger basis so that's the second part that's on the intellectual side i'd say on the spiritual side i felt very connected with a large group of people globally by being a global traveler i think going forward some of the big shifts and changes to adjust to this new future that we're experiencing is to get my work out there much louder because i've realized that much of the work that I've been doing up until now, people are, are sort of entering, whether it is climate change or how to live a better life or better well-being in, indoors, as an example. So I've been so busy doing it that I haven't told anybody about it. There's folders upon folders that I need to 
you know, get online and share some of our biggest learnings. And I feel that I owe that to the world um, for giving me the learnings that the world has. Well, I've, I've had the privilege of having a sneak uh, look in some of those many, many folders. So please do <laughs> anything we or the network can do to help you accelerate that. Don't be shy to ask. Thank you. Now, so try, trying to tie together uh, digital architecture, <laughs> office design, um, and, and this, this crazy uh, pandemic world we live in. Um, a lot of the Adorium uh, members are entrepreneurs, investors. Uh, they will have you know, investments in office buildings or investing in companies that have lots of office buildings and office spaces, which were primarily uh, designed for a pre-COVID world. Also, if you really look at it, were not uh, designed for an advanced digital world. They were designed for a basic, you know, in, let's say e email early internet world. How's this all going to change? What should, what should we be thinking about design concepts for tomorrow for offices? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, we spend something close to 85 to 90% of our time indoors. During these times, we're working, we're playing, we're organizing, we're cooking, whatever it is that we're doing, we're exposed internally to indoor air quality, VOCs, all sorts of, of endocrine disruption in chemicals that we use, that we're, you know, really, we're, we're lacking the panel study, we're lacking the decade-long studies to show us how buildings are making us behave. You know, headaches, dry coughs, sneezing, all sorts of sick building syndromes that are a result of bad design, poor quality in, in air, for example. So what do we do about buildings that now, with the potential of a virus that's aerosol, connecting the entire building indoors to an environment that is limited ventilation, for example, HVAC systems that don't have the right kinds of filters, the right kinds of decision-making from maintenance to you know, facilities, like what do we need to do in these buildings to adapt them to pandemics? These buildings, as well as cities. We've designed these cities and buildings so that we can, we can get more people into small spaces and we can have even more interactions. But unfortunately, that is not the case that, that, that needs to continue. If we are to keep, if, if, if we have wave number two, three, four, five, even more virulent and even more strong strains in the future, then are we just going to hide away in our isolation chambers at home? Are we going, forever, are we going to be working from a home environment? I think there are very big questions that come up in terms of the future of work and how do we design physical environments that have solutions that go beyond the, the designs of hermetically sealed buildings, environments that have absolutely no connection with nature, no passive design designed into them, so much so that they're so difficult to manage today. What, what kind of buildings, what kind of environments, what kind of well-being and productivity do we want to introduce in our lives? Is there a particular comfort standard that is appropriate for today? Is there a, um, you know, so, so these are very, very big questions and with a number of our clients, what we're doing is homing in on the design of the building, what it is that affects these buildings in terms of productivity of work, but also comfort and health and well-being of the occupants. And these occupants are, you know, the buildings are, are analysed post-occupancy, so that we haven't looked at any of these new buildings. What we're doing is assessing the occupants and suggesting what changes need to happen inside the buildings. So yes, we assess the, the building itself and and have a look at all of the statistics that we can gather from the actual design and layout um, and the design that we were hoping for rather than what was actually built because what you design and what you build are two different things and that's you know I'll give you an example of the the long list of handover you know the 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 things that you need to sign off at the end of the building project and sometimes many things are value engineered out but today we're living in an environment where we don't really need to own things. So this sort of um, leverage assets, leveraging assets that we rent out physical spaces is a big question mark. Do we need to have such high rental properties? Not really. Do we need to have everybody in one physical environment? Also not really. So are we going away from the density models of, of yester, yesteryear? I think we are.
it's interesting with your uh, your comments um the, the cultural uh, comments on how the indigenous tribes that uh, you said were the, the most happiest of people that you see um you know work you know are working together in, in a hive as such and, and i guess in the old thinking that uh, what used to be the office building was a hive that created a community and all of the let's say the uh, HR and people strategy stuff was to try and create a tribe that, uh, that lived in the building. Is it possible to reenact that feeling of belonging and passion if you're sitting in a home office? That's an interesting question because I believe we need to have these pocket spaces in order for us to adjust our, our homes even to potential quarantine situations. So how do we design these public spaces or private spaces so that we can adjust to a pandemic situation. It's about multiple uses for one space. I used to love these Japanese um, homes that were extremely cute and small. And with a change of some furniture, it turned into a dining room, put that back, take a bed out, now a bedroom. And there's this sort of multi-use and multi-purpose uses of, of physical spaces and at this moment I really do feel for anybody that's living in a on the 30th floor of a building in an apartment with no balcony and no roof and no access outdoors it's a really tremendously difficult time and I can only imagine with the number of elevators if if there was an issue with <laughs> the lift surface what would you do to get outside and I think you know in terms of the the, the, the larger context of what does it mean to have a community i think it, community at home the extension of the social fabric at home what kind of environment do you want to create we've never spent this much time at home we go out to work we go out to play we go to gyms we go to cinemas and theaters for entertainment we go to restaurants and cafes we do a lot of our living inside buildings but away from home and this is probably the longest period of time i know it is for me that I've been in one location, let alone being in one building, let alone being with children and my family members. So it's a really fascinating question right now. What kind of an environment socially do you want to keep? What kind of social influence do you want to have? How can that society around you that you've designed have uh, an influence on you that shifts your behavior? Many many families have probably not been in this kind of a nexus ever before where all the children are doing their schooling from home where everybody everybody of adult age is doing all of the work from home and everything from entertaining to you know working deeply to relaxing is all in a room it's a really big challenge right now so but we but we've seen that it can be done for you know many job types and roles, um, it's possible to uh, work remotely. So does that, and I'm just wondering, does the pandemic spell the end of megacities? Is that the end of urbanization? Are we all gonna uh, move to the country? If we're wired, connected through digital communications, I think there is absolutely no need to have density in the ways that we have. We have an amazing urbanist called Doxiadis, who's passed on. Greek used to look at cities as the heart of civilization. And the moment that the city sprawled beyond what the heart could manage, it got too big and would need another heart. So it feels very much that the heart of the city used to be the center of a physical like urban environment. That urban environment would, you know, allow for congregations of different sorts, whether it were you know, the space around the beautiful tell in Aleppo where people are sitting outside and having a natter to the huge and long promenades where people can gather and communicate with each other. Communications largely happen in a variety of forms today. They don't need to be physical. They also don't need to be digital. But what has happened over the course of, I believe, my kind of you know, almost 30-year history of the internet being in our lives is the question of how have we now adjusted to accept the digital layer is definitely part of our lives. Up until now, if you weren't in person in an interview, then there were very big questions of, of how 
honorable you were and whether you really meant to be there if you weren't physically there. And now virtually we've been all around the world. And that virtual appreciation of communication, whether it is Skype with your grandmother who never used Skype before today, is now a connection point that wasn't there before. So I think there is an acceptance of the digital layer, which is now going to have huge consequences on mobility. Did you really need to travel two hours in Mexico City to go to work and then two hours back, four hours in total every day? Mm, maybe not. Do we need to have the kinds of communication devices that we've needed up until now? Or do we want to spend more time off Zoom or off digital altogether? Do we need a digital diet? Is that something that's now going to develop because we're spending way too much time online? There are really big, you know, underlying issues that I think we need to tear open and, and question. So we've got we've come to uh, the stage where I'm going to ask you some questions that come from the Adorium network. So oh, that's exciting. Let's do some quick, let's do some quick fire questions. Oh yeah. So um, question number one: Can you explain your ideas on investing in a circular economy, and what does it exactly mean? Hmm. Circular economy is where the input and the output are connected through a system and a process that allows for any of the resources that have been input to be reabsorbed into another input. So it's this sort of circularity by, by value because there is no waste. The moment that you take a, a, the idea of waste out of the system, it becomes very circular in that whatever the output, let's say, of the food that I made today is the peel that I have used from the potatoes I can put into the compost, compost then becomes the soil that I then use to, to plant more potatoes. So there is a sort of circularity to that, the seasonality, the circularity from, from the influence and the inspiration of nature. Now, when it comes to the investment cycle, if there is a wastage of that, where it becomes accumulated in, in the landfill site, then we're going to ask the question, what was the point of investing in something that that had a negative output? So the investment cycle is similar to the ecosystem cycle. How can you put money in that processes in a way that doesn't take that money out and put it somewhere that doesn't serve a purpose in the communal sense? Thank you. Welcome. Question two, a uh, personal question. Uh, what was the moment that led you onto your path, this path you're on? Um, and why is it so important to you? There are a number of them, but the one that came to, to mind right now was a moment. Um, the first time that I learned how to dive, I was in the Seychelles surrounded by a shoal of fish. I had this ridiculous amount of equipment, my regulator, breathing apparatus, all my canisters and everything. And I remember this moment where I was floating and that this shoal of fish that just looked at me and they were so curious. And I'm connecting with so many eyes around me. I'm like, wow, this is a moment that I've never had before. Completely immersed in this situation where everybody else who's with me, my buddy and all of the other, the gang that was diving with me are looking at this and I'm thinking, well, this connection I know is rare. I've never had this before, but it's nature becoming conscious of itself because I also am nature. And it was that conscious of itself that, got me thinking about what happens when kind of the words of Carl Sagan, when the cosmos becomes conscious of itself, it started to trigger a number of questions with regards to, are we really not nature? There was this fallacy in my head that we're not nature and that we are, you know, something completely different because of course we can make cars and computers and that's not nature or is it? Of course the inspiration comes from nature the products, the primary source of it is nature. But by modifying it, we modify the relationship and the natural laws for which we don't even understand the results of. So that's really one of the moments that got me thinking. It's, it's funny when you, when you talk about cars as being part of nature, it's interesting that we are one of the measures of the power of a car is, me, is measured against obviously horses. So we're not, you know, even, even when you're looking at transportation, we bring ourselves back to, uh, to our roots. Question three, how would you build a sustainable city and is it expensive? Mm. 
I believe a sustainable city is one made by the citizens and the community designed for the purposes that they need, evolving as their needs evolve and in alignment with the laws of nature. Is it expensive? Depends what kind of resource you're comparing that expense to. Money, monetary, time, time, is time an expense? Do you think a city can be profitable? Depends if you need profits. Would you have a not-for-profit city? Question four. Is there <laughs> how anyone has actually influenced governments to make positive changes on climate change? Mm, that's a beautiful question. I think there are so many people that I can pull out right now, but one closer to home, my business partner Rod in the 1970s, and I'm actually quite close to the location in Macclesfield. He was doing his PhD. The opportunity came to go and buy a hut. He happened to buy it on Black Road. This is a street that you know, the buildings are kind of like 1800 and something, quite old, quite tatty. There was a little hut. He bought it for pretty cheap. He said, look, I'm gonna stay here, do my PhD and that's it. Within a couple of months, he kind of knew that these buildings would have been brought down, but the rest of the community didn't know that. And the local council had sent a letter out to everybody saying, we're gonna take these buildings down, you need to move over there where we've got a block of flats. The community came knocking on Rod's door. He was doing a PhD in architecture at the time on Arnie Jacobson's designs. And being an architect, he said, well, you know, can you just leave me to my PhD? He said, no. Get on with it. You're educated. You need to help us. They're going to take down our buildings. We have our grandparents were born in, in these buildings. You need to help us do something about this. So he said, I'll tell you what you do in the building, but I'm not going to do it for you. I'll help you to do it for yourself. They said, well, that's a bit crazy because we're not architects. And he said, you don't need to be. And that's kind of apprenticeship, the, the apprenticeship model, which I think we're lacking a lot in society today that you have to go for a formal education to do anything as simple as bricklaying. But he showed them how to do it for themselves. By showing them how to do it, the government got really annoyed. Of course, these are buildings that are unfit for human habitation. What the hell do you think you're doing, Mr. Architect? And not charging them a fee. So the body of architecture, the RIBA, took him to court because he didn't charge fees. The council took him to court because he wasn't doing what they wanted. He won that battle with about 300 people of the public that were also living in the community of Black Road. And having won that, got something close to £3,000 in back in the day, I'm not too sure how much it would be today, for each household to refurbish and self-build, each of them you know, intermittently doing each other's jobs. One was really good at electrics, somebody else was very good at bricklaying. And by having done that, created a community of a local enterprise that served its, its purpose, of course, but then developed all these skills that for, for multiple generations that may not have been working now had a professional skill that they could go and set up their own businesses. That improved not only the health factor and the well-being factor for all of these people, for which the government was going to take down the buildings, it increased their capacity to earn, it increased their ability to go and generate income for communities other than themselves because they'd be employing more people. The entrepreneurialism flourished in this community. And yes, Britain had slums. And these slums are the locations that these projects just ballooned in. Did it have an impact on climate change? If you are recycling the building materials and if you are helping community to improve their health and well-being. Yes, you are, I believe. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Yeah, really inspiring. Really inspiring person. So question five. <laughs> what industries face the biggest challenge when it comes to sustainability? Oh, that's a good one. A really good one. I mean, I've never really prioritised who's got the biggest job. Hmm. I guess travel travel's going to be a, a difficult one. Uh, you know, uh, aeroplanes flying across the sky and people planting trees to try and offset their 
carbon. It's interesting because that doesn't really reduce the, the footprint, right? It just encourages it because you can trade it out of your life. Now it's somebody else's responsibility to plant another tree and that's not tit for tat either. The, um, the, the, the ability of CO2 to be hosted in, in humus in soil is far, it, it out, outnumbers the amount that can be hosted in a tree or even in a whale, who knew? Mm. Um, that's a really difficult question because I think every industry has had an impact whether it is the educational industry now having to update their standards and educational content because I remember back in the day 2011 I think I was at University of British Columbia where the dean of the university said from now on every university course should have credits that are awarded to sustainability courses so I don't care whether you're doing law you're also studying sustainability i don't care whether you're going to be doing medicine you will also be studying sustainability so every industry has had its subsequent shift and change i think a lot of the heavy lifting will be done in the built environment because we live and spend a lot of our times in it i also think that huge changes will occur in terms of the nature of our agricultural industry i think that's huge i think the largest one that will probably have to do a lot of heavy lifting is the pharmaceutical industry which will realize that you know, if you can just take vitamin C, like the previous podcast before me, if you can take vitamin C in higher doses, which is, you know, any of the, the kind of the vitamins can't really be patented. So you've got an industry that can't make any money because people are now recognizing that nutrition is so much more important. Preventative health is so much more important. So what are you going to do? So, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating dynamic that we've developed an entire platform and system, but it's falling apart like look at the oil prices going down to minus numbers we've never in our lives thought that that would happen apart from 1970 something when it happened in during the oil crisis so yeah i think i think these waves are going to show behind the scenes who is being impacted the most but if you're trump and you're plowing trillions into the economy and artificially floating it well that's not a free market anymore Absolutely. So we, we, I think we're running out of time now. I've got, I think I've got one last question, so maybe we can end on a very positive note. When we think about the future, uh, what chances are that there's a better future because of this current crisis that we're going through? I'm amazed with the number of people that have gathered to work on coronavirus related issues, whether it is you knocking on your next door neighbor's door and saying, hey, if you need anything, just let me know. Here's my telephone number. Here's a postcard with the information about me. Or whether it is communities researching and plowing their time and effort into sharing that information across China to India to America. I'm so incredibly inspired by people working together on a single, single project. So come what may, I have now proof. I have now the the you know, the opportunity to see that we can work together. And for me, that's an incredible piece of hope. That's very beautiful. Dr. Tia Kansara, you're an amazing woman. Dr. Uh, always brilliant to talk with you. Thank you for uh, sharing so much of your time. Thank and, you uh, very much. Be safe. Thank you.